you to bless this time as we look at your word, guide us, show us what you want us to see. We thank you for your care and your protection, and thank you for the Holy Spirit guiding. In Jesus' name, amen. Jeremiah chapter 11. We're going to be starting at verse 8. One of the things about Jeremiah is Jeremiah, we see he really loves Israel, even though they're doing evil against God. And so he's, even though he speaks some very hard things against them, we also see the tears and the love that he has through, through him. And we always want to remember that as we're reading through these long sections of judgment, judgment, judgment. He still loves the people and, and will be very tearful toward them. So starting in verse 8. Yet they obeyed not, nor inclined their ear, but walked every man in the imagination of his evil heart. Therefore I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not, did them not. And the Lord said unto me, A conspiracy is found among the men of Judah, and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers, which refused to hear my words, and they went after other gods to serve them, the house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my commandment, which I have made with their fathers. Therefore, thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon them, which they shall not be able to escape. And though they shall cry unto me, I will not hearken unto them. Then shall the cities of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem go and cry unto the gods unto whom they offer incense, but they shall not save them at all in the time of their trouble. All right, we'll stop there. So here God is continuing. Before this section last week, we talked about him rehearsing the fact that Israel had a conditional covenant. If you obey me, you shall stay in the land. And this is where we come with uh, verse 8. Yet they obeyed not. This is bad enough that they didn't obey. But he says also, nor inclined their ears. So, okay, they didn't obey and they didn't listen at all. And this is what's in double jeopardy. It's bad enough not listening and disobeying, but now they're not doing either one. And God is saying, I gave you instructions. You are not listening. And then he goes, therefore, there's going to be some problems. And he says, but walked everyone in the imagination of their evil heart. Their imagination, the hardness and stubbornness of their own desires. And this is the sad thing. When people keep rebelling against God, eventually they stop hearing God's word. Then when they stop hearing God's word, they start letting themselves be God and make their own rules. And that's what he's saying. You, you didn't obey. You stopped hearing. And now you're living after your own evil thoughts and imaginations. And, you know, I kind of think this is, is where our country is right now. We used to hear God's words. Now, whether we were Christian or not is another story, but they, they obeyed God for the most part. Then they stopped listening to God altogether. And now we have everybody doing what is their own imaginations tell them is good, just like Israel did. And there's judgment that comes from that activity. And it says, Therefore, I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant which I commanded them to do, but they did them not. And last week we talked about the covenant and, and everything. We went back to Exodus and Deuteronomy where God told them, if you obey, then this land will be yours. If you do not obey, you will be cast out. And all the, and he talked about all the good things that would happen due to, due to obedience. You'll drive out the enemies. You'll be blessed. The produce will be good. The, everything will be good for you. And he goes, but if you do not obey my words, then your enemies will drive you out. You will not get good, good crops. You know, and all the stuff was the exact opposite. And here God is saying, you're not obeying. Therefore, the curse is going to fall. Now, this is kind of funny in one sense because God pronounced this curse almost 2,000 years earlier. About 15, 1,600 years earlier, the curse was placed upon, the blessing and curses were placed on them. And at that time, the, the Jewish people said, we will obey everything that you said. Well, that generation didn't even obey everything that God said. And none of their future generations obeyed anything that God said. Yes. Both. 
I mean, they in, in one side of them, they wanted to they wanted to obey God, and they said, well, if you're going to bless us, we'll definitely obey you. But the evil inclination of our heart, if we don't let God rule in our heart, we cannot obey God. And this is true for no matter, for anybody, even for Christians, if we don't let God rule in our heart and surrender to him, we cannot obey him no matter how much we want to. Because the flesh will not obey God in and of itself. And this is why Paul said in Romans, you know, I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do. Oh, woe is me. You know, and that's our story. If we are not walking with God and, and surrendered completely to God, we will not obey, even though our spirit within us wants to obey. We cannot obey without him ruling. No, he's just expressing the condition of the human heart. We are sinful beings. Or at least as famous and well-known as Paul. Uh, <laughs> and so it does mean, and if every single person you look at in scriptures, except for two of them, we see all kinds of negatives about them. All right? And this is, no matter who we look at, except Daniel. Daniel's the one person we don't see anything negative about at all. Okay? Joseph... Nothing really is negative, but you see the pride in him by sharing with his brothers the dream. And we see pride. We see the pride in Joseph. Even though no, you know, no scripture says Joseph did wrong, we see his attitude problems. Now, I'm not saying Daniel was perfect, but we don't see negatives in Daniel. We see nothing but positive on Daniel. And so this is the question for us. And we look at any of the heroes in the Bible we see they all had great weaknesses. You know, and I was talking with one guy about Moses, and he goes, well, Moses was just really great, and then I named off all the places where Moses had problems, even as he's leading the children of Israel. And he's going, well, you're ruining my hero. I'm going, sorry, but this is what the Bible says. You know, Abraham, how many times did he lie? You know, she's my sister. You know, uh, didn't obey God and leave his family behind. You know, he brought his father with him to and got stuck in uh, uh, Ur, uh, and then he then he still brought uh, Lot with him and caused himself troubles, and caused his descendants troubles. <laughs> so we see over and over, and it doesn't matter who we pick in the Bible. There we see the problems that they have walking with God, and I think it's great because now anybody I look at going, if God, you can use them. Maybe you can use me. You know, I've been very fortunate. I haven't actually killed anybody. Most of these great heroes killed somebody. Uh, now I have told a few lies in my lifetime. I have done a few wrong things in my lifetime. So if God can use them, he can still use me. And this is the good news here. He promised them that if you obey me, you'll keep this land. And he's very patient with them because they never obeyed him completely. All through these times, they didn't obey, and God still didn't cast them out of the land. Yeah, yeah, and none of us do. None of us do either. Even when we think we're being hammered and 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 beat up upon, God still isn't giving us what we deserve. Oh, the whole nation pays for it all the way up through this period of time because of David's sin. And that's the problem with sin is it can sometimes have long-lasting ramifications. And David repented. God didn't kill him like he deserved. But the sword never left his, never left his family, his immediate family, nor the generations to follow. God used him in many ways. And God used many of his children. And all of us do. All of us do. If, we're, if we want to seek after God because we're, we're saved, we will have some good things. All right? Because we're trying to seek God. And this is why Paul said, the good that I want to do, I don't do. And I don't do the things I want. Uh, I do the things I don't want to do. But he wasn't saying all of his decisions were bad. 
And he wasn't saying that I never do what I want to do, but he was just given that human condition. I keep, I really want to serve God, but I keep finding these problems in my life. I keep finding myself down in the ditch and in the gutters instead of on the hilltop in, in victory. And here we're seeing the same thing. It says, God said that he was going to bring judgment. And it really did. It started with them just being disobedient. Then they stopped listening to God and God says, okay, now you're, now you're living according to your own imaginations. And for human beings, if we live according to our own imaginations, it's evil. And we're in trouble. And all of us know what that means because even if we don't do the wrong thing, what's the first thing that pops into our mind when somebody does something to us? I'm going to really get this person. If, if I could just do this, I'd do it. And yet the Spirit oftentimes will keep us from doing the wrong thing that we want to do in our heart. And then he says after them, verse 9, And the Lord said unto me, this is Jeremiah, A conspiracy or treason or unlawful action is found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So this is kind of an interesting thing, treason. In this case, it's not treason against the king, but it's treason against the king of kings, God himself. These people were not worshiping God. He laid down the rules. And this is the thing that we have in our generation even today. God is in charge. Now, not everybody recognizes that God is in charge, but he is in charge. And he could be saying, even in our day, there is treason amongst my, amongst the, my creation. They are not willing to obey my rules. And here he says, they have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers, which refused to hear my words, and they went after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel, the house of Judah, have broken my covenant, which I have made with their fathers. They have gone back to the sins of the past. And this is something that I have said so many times. My greatest prayer for God is I want to finish well. I do not want to shift backwards into the sins of the past. You know, because I know what it was like before I got saved. I know what my father was like. I know what my grandfather was like before salvation. I do not want to get in that place. And God is telling the children of Israel, you have returned all the way back. How far back? Egypt. Well, we don't really think, when we think about God delivering his children of e out of Egypt, how polluted was their minds from God? We don't really realize it until we start watching, what did they do in the wilderness? The first problem that they had when they thought Moses had disappeared and died on the mountain, make us a God. You know, we don't know about this God that Moses has been giving us. You know, Moses seemed to have a good, good relationship with him, and miracles were happening when Moses was here. But we need a God. And would they pick? One of the gods of Egypt. Even though God had wiped out all the gods of Egypt and beat them up real bad, they still had a polluted way of thinking. So when they were in Egypt, were they able to worship The thing you want to remember about that period of time was there was no Bible. They knew they needed to offer sacrifices to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But how many other gods did they also worship at that time? We don't know. We don't know a lot about them. There was no scripture at that point. Moses wrote the Pentateuch. So somewhere in that process, Moses wrote down. Now they had the, the history and the oral traditions. They knew about you know, God. They knew about Abraham. They knew about Isaac. They knew about Jacob. They knew about the coming to, to Egypt. That covers Genesis. They did not have a lot to... Now, there was probably much more that they drew from, obviously, because Adam and Eve knew that they had to offer sacrifices. Cain and Abel knew they had to offer sacrifices. Uh, they apparently knew that it had to be a blood sacrifice because Abel offered a blood sacrifice. Cain offered a, a non-blood non sacrifice, and God said, I don't accept it. I, they knew their stories. They knew how to worship God. They, they knew that they were supposed to worship God. But what were they doing in that land? We don't know for sure, but we see evidence all through Exodus and the wandering of 40 years 
that they were very quick to go to the other gods. Yeah, at least we had food. Those gods over there took care of us. You know, we're out here with our gods supposedly not taking care of us. So we see that evidence. And the first thing they do is make us a god. All right. Uh, so God had to give them the rules. What, what happened when they came into Canaan? They didn't destroy all of the uh, Canaanites and the Hittites and the Jezusites and the Pezites and all those otherites. And what did they do? They started worshiping their gods. Over and over again, they started worshiping their gods. They were poorly taken care of. Huh? They were poorly taken care of. In Egypt? Yeah, they weren't taken, they weren't, but they were. Well, they got to the place where they despised manna and water and said, well, we don't want this stuff. We want, we want all the stuff we used to have. How many times do we as Christians, though, tend to try to do the same thing? I'm not happy, God, with what you're giving me. You know, I'm happy, peaceful, everything's going, you know, I want what I used to have. And we do the same thing, you know, and I don't want to be harsh on them. You know, we do, we tend to do the same exact thing. We look back and say, wow, we're so much better back when I didn't like what I was going through and I was looking for God and, and wanted to leave. But now that I'm on God's side, I'm not really happy with what I've got. I really wish I had what I had back then. And on, on our rational mind, we realize it's not true. We remember, you know, we weren't happy with it. It was easy. Uh, you know, uh, life was easy. No trials, no, no, no troubles, uh, because I was in the world. But I didn't like what being in the world, and it's why I sought God. But now that I'm on the other side facing the trials and tribulations of the world against me and I, and I don't fully trust God, I'm going, well, maybe it was better back then. And we as human beings have this really great desire to forget the bad side of the past. Now, it, I don't know why I got rid of that thing until I got in, back into it. Now, and I, I went through that when I first moved to Arizona. I went back to restaurants after having been away for 15 years. I just remembered all the stuff I liked about restaurants. Didn't take me long to remember all the stuff I didn't like about restaurants. Because there's a lot about restaurant work that I like. You know, but there's a lot of stuff I don't like about restaurant work. So we as human beings have this tendency to forget the bad in the past, which is probably a good thing. Because if we always dwelt on the past and the negatives, we'd live a miserable life. And the people who do dwell on all the mis miserable parts of the past live a miserable time because they're always dwelling about all how bad life is and I've met lots of people who are that way you know all my life is just miserable nothing ever good happens to me you know nothing ever nothing 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 yeah woe is me God doesn't bless me and never had anything good now, the flip side of that is, well, everything was better back then, and now it's not good. That's still just as bad. We need to be looking at what God is doing, and this is why we need to be looking and saying, God, what are you doing for me today? And which is also why I tell people, if you have trouble in this area, keep a journal of everything that God does for you, so that when you're tempted to think that nothing good has ever happened to you, open the book up. And say, oh, oh, yeah, this happened. Oh, yeah, this happened. Oh, yeah, this happened. And I'm, and I'm not a proponent of positive thinking, but it is true that when we look at what God is doing for us and has done for us, we will be able to end up in a better, better uh, position. Because it's real easy to say nothing good, you know, especially when we're in the middle of a trial. And we just think God is really beating up on us and letting Satan beat up on us. And we're going, man, nothing good is happening. I wish I was back, back in Egypt. You know, and when we say that, that means being back in the world, back in the old. He goes, you know, and there's many times that we do. God, I just want to go back to Egypt. I don't, I don't like it out here in the wilderness. I don't like it here in the promised land where I have to fight battles to win. You know, God, I just want to go back to Egypt. It was easy back there. I just had to do what they told me to do every day. And then they gave me food and housing and beat me with a whip and 
and pounded on me, but life was okay as long as I did my work. And this is something that I have seen over and over. It really amazes me how many people are Christians that will say, I trust God to take care of me for eternity in heaven, but he can't take care of me here on earth. And I keep, it just amazes me when people will, I got to worry, I've got to do, I got to, 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 God's not going to be able to tell me, I can't give him tithes and offerings because he's not going to take care of me. And I'm going, well, you, are you going to go, oh yeah, I'm going to go to heaven. Everything will be really good in heaven. God can take care of me in heaven. Well, why can't he take care of you here on earth? Well, I don't know. He's just not doing it. And it's like, the, the dichotomy involved in that is just bizarre. But it is human nature. I'm looking at what I see and I'm going, I'm not getting what I think I want, so God's not taking care of me. When I get to heaven, he'll take care of me. He's got a mansion up there. He's going to feed me every day. Nothing bad's ever going to happen, but I'm on this earth and, and God somehow doesn't have control of what goes on in this earth. You know, and nobody would say that, but you listen to them and what do they really say? God's not in control of anything. Uh, now, in the mind, they go, God's in control. I know he's in control. I know that he's in control, but my life says he's not in control, so I don't believe he's in control of my life. And we need to be very careful about that. Which do we believe? This is why I love the Truth Project when Del Taka keeps going up. Do you really believe that what you believe is really real? Do I truly believe what God says, or does my life say I don't believe it? And we all find ourselves in that place at some point. Where we go, God, I really believe this, and then our life says, no, I don't believe it. Now, now, ideally, we should believe what we believe and live out what we believe. But again, that takes us to what Paul says, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I want to do. You know, God, I really believe that you can take care of me. God, I don't, what's going to happen here? I just don't know how, gonna, how things are going to be taken care of. I better go out and get another loan to pay for these bills. I better go out and, and work nine jobs because I don't have enough money coming in. And you know, whatever it might be. And again, God is not telling us to be lazy and do nothing, but he's also saying, do we trust him? Are we willing to do what it takes to trust him and let him work in our life? And here God is telling them, you, you wanted to serve other, other gods? He goes, um, verse 10, they turned back to the iniquities of their fathers. They refused to hear my words and they went after other gods to serve them the house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant. They sought other gods. Now, in their day, they, they actually sought other gods and, and idols. What do we do in our day? We seek other gods. They're not gold and silver and wood and stone, but we seek other gods. For those of us like myself who are workaholics, it's very easy to say, well, God, you're not taking care of me, so I'm going to go get a few more jobs. All right? Uh, some people... God, you know, I just really need the, the care of my family, so I'm going to put all my effort into my family. All of it. I'm, I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to read my Bible. I'm going to just care for my family. Other people will go into various sins and say, I'm just going to look for happiness and fulfillment in, place your sin in that, in, in that category. And God is saying, the house of Israel and, Jude, and Judah have followed after other gods. And in this case, we know it was constant. You know, they constantly kept going. A king would come along or a, or a judge would come along or a king. They would follow God for a while. And then as soon as that king or judge died, okay, time to go back to the old way of doing things. And they would follow after the other gods. And over and over again, this would happen as they rejected God. Short-sightedness, the same reason that drives us back to, back into our sinful lifestyle away from God. You get the person who says, I don't want to do drugs or alcohol or these sins that have me besetting, and they get, and God delivers them. And as soon as they quit walking with God closely, what's the first thing they do? They go back to whatever sin it was that they were delivered from. Over and over and over again. 
And this is why I've said so many times, the key that we need to learn is to learn to surrender to God and fully trust him. And I've done the same thing. I've gone back to the same problems and same issues myself over the years. It's easy. It's natural. It's what we do. And especially when it's part of who we are. I am a hard worker. I am somebody that can be, do well. So my default position, if I need help, do it myself. You know, just do it myself. You know, I'm a self-made person. I can, I can do it. And, and this is the problem. People do this over and over. And I've looked at people over the years and I'm going, you know, I've, I've looked at women who keep making choices of going to men that abuse and, and batter them and go, why? Because it's what they know. You know, it's easier to do what they know, even though it's going to hurt them. They keep going back. And we do the same thing as human beings. We know that what we're going to do may, may hurt us, but we're willing to sacrifice the, the security of what we know and what we think might give us some pleasure for the potential of the harm that will come. And we do it over and over and over again. Israel did it over and over again. And we see it so many times. And it really does look at how surrendered am I to God? What is my focus on? Paul's focus was mostly on heaven. Otherwise, he would never have gone through the trials that he went through. And he said it in more than one place. These trials are nothing compared to the glory that is coming. I'm looking to the glory of, your, of you being, being resurrected. I'm looking to the glory. Over and over, he says, I'm looking to the glory that is in the future as I do these. Oh, yeah. But again, if I'm looking to the glory, then the problems aren't as big. If I sight, I mean, they're still just as big, just as hard. But when I'm looking and saying, I want to go through this so that somebody else is going to get blessed, or that I will have the blessing in heaven, all of a sudden that problem shrinks. And this is what Paul was saying over and over to the people. I am willing to do this because you are getting blessed because of it. And that's an extreme blip. You know, he's not even looking at, you know, my glory. He's looking at, I want to serve you, church, so that you get blessed, even no matter what I go through. And this is the, the point of the, the poster in my, the poster, the piece of paper. <laughs> what is the value of one soul? What are we willing to go through if one person gets saved? One person grows for Christ. <laughs> Unfortunately, we are so. All of us are. We're all selfish. This is why I put it in front of me where I look up at that wall and I see it all the time to remind myself, why do I go through the things that I go through? Is to see somebody else grow. And I don't do it perfectly. Don't, don't get me wrong. But I'm always putting that in front of my mind. What is the value of just one soul? That's why sometimes when I you know, get hit by Satan, you know, you just have a small church, you deserve so much, you know, bigger and better. I'm going, the value of one soul, the lives that are being changed in this church that I get to just be a part of because I teach. And I'm going, thank you. It's worth it. It's worth it. And I wouldn't see it in a large church. Part of the problem in a pastor of a church, large church is they don't get to see as much change in the life of their people. It's not as personal. It's not as intimate. You have to pick certain people and go, okay, yes, there is somebody out there that's growing. And this is what's going on is they're making bad choices. And God said in verse 14, uh, 11, Therefore thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will bring evil upon, upon them, which they shall not be able to escape. And though they shall cry unto me, I will not hearken unto them. This indicates that there is a point before God that people can cross and God says, judgment is coming and I'm not listening to your crying. I'm not listening to any repentance. I'm not listening to any begging. You have crossed the final line. And we seem to see that in the book of Revelation, that the world has crossed to the final line and Satan is out there doing great harm and God is trying to get people to listen and yet they don't seem to listen. 
And here God is saying, you've come to the end. Your nation is going to go into captivity and I'm going to have a deaf ear towards you. When you're crying out, when you realize that your gods aren't saving you, I won't save you either. Because you're, and I think in this case, it's more the fact that God knew that the only reason they're calling out to him is because all kinds of problems are going on and their gods aren't helping them. So they're turning to him. And God says, okay, sorry, (laughs) I'm not going to be second choice. And what have I said before? You know, God has to be our only choice for us to get, get by. There is no second choice for salvation. There is no second choice for deliverance. If God is not going to be our savior, if he's not going to be our deliverer, he's not going to be choice number two. And here, not only was he not choice number two, but he's not choice number three, four, five, or six. They're worshiping Baal and Ashtoreth and Moloch and, and every other god under the sun. So God is saying, I'm not listening to you. No, in this case, we don't know what he's saying here. They're, judged, they're being judged. If they truly knew God, they would enter into heaven. If they didn't, they're entering into hell. And for us as his children, if we want to turn our back on him, we're not going to go to hell for that judgment, but he's going to put us through the ringer and say, are you going to be obedient to me? And too many Christians have God on the back burner. God, if I need you, you just sit there in that back room over there. I've let you in my heart, but I'm not going to give you the throne. I'm going to give you the back room back there. And if I need you, I'll come open the door and let you in. You know, uh, very famous uh, bumper sticker back in the 70s and 80s was God is my co-pilot. Well, God should should not be our co-pilot. He is the pilot of our life. You know, and I'm unfortunate. I remember lots and lots of people. I was young. I didn't have a car back then, but I know lots of people had that on there. And they thought that was really great. You know, God is God is in my life. He's my co-pilot. No, God should be in the pilot's chair. You should be the co-pilot. And this is the problem that we have as Christians. Too often we put God maybe in a chair next to the throne. Worse yet, we put him in the back room someplace until we need him. And God says, I'm not going to go, I'm not playing this game. I'm not going to come out of the back room or, or, or help you just because you ask if I'm not in the seat of authority. And this is where we have to remember, and I, and I keep hammering on this. Jesus is Lord and Savior. He's not just Lord, a Savior. He's Lord and Savior, which means he's in charge. Now, and unfortunately, us in America, we don't really understand this idea of Lord. Because you know, even with our government, we don't like our government. What do we do? We vote them out of office. Hopefully. Or at least we try. Uh, but we can c- condemn, our, condemn our leaders and attack our leaders and all these things with, with no problems. Because we just vote them out. We don't like them. <laughs> we'll put somebody else in there. Maybe we'll like them better. God is not voted into office. All right. We invite him in to be our Lord and Savior. He expects us to make him Lord. And that means surrender to him. And if we don't surrender to him, he will make sure that our life is miserable when we try to do it our way. And I've done it my way many times and been miserable and watching God not allow me to do things my way. But he is Lord and Savior. He wants to be master of all that we do. And God says, they shall not escape Verse 10 of 12, Then shall the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem go and cry unto the gods unto whom they offer incense, but they shall not save them at all in their time of trouble. So God says there's going to be a time when even the appearance of them doing good for you is not going to exist. Before the God's judgment falls on the nation, things usually look good. When you read Isaiah, you read Jeremiah, you read Haggai, you read uh, Hosea, you read, you know, all these things. The, and the attitude of the people was, you're telling us God's going to judge us, but look at all the crops. We have bumper, bumper crops, our enemies are at bay, everything is going good, and we're not worshiping God, we're worshiping all these idols. Look what good things they're doing for us. And God is telling them, there's coming a time... When the judgment is coming, 
And even when you go to your gods, nothing good will come. When God brings judgment, there's no way out of it. And that's true for even us as Christians. Without repentance, there's no way out of the judgment that God sends our way. He wants obedience. Are we willing to be obedient to him in all that he asks us to do? Now, this is hard because we never are fully obedient. But the question is, are we trying to be obedient? Do we want to be obedient? All of those things have a great impact into our life. But when we turn around and say, God, no, not going to happen. I am not going to trust you. I'm not giving a tithe because I can't live on the 100%. I'm not going to trust you to live on 90%. God, I'm going to do everything I can to do it my way. I'm going to do what I want to do, not what you tell me to do. And all those things lead to judgment. And God's saying it's going to be taken care of. Oftentimes we do that. God, I know what I'm supposed to do. I know that I know what you're going to tell me if I ask. You're going to tell me to do something that I don't, I don't want to do. And there are times when we just don't ask because we don't want to hear the answer. Didn't ask mom and dad if I could go to the party because I knew they were going to say no. So I just snuck out of the house and went to the party anyway because they didn't say no. Yeah. Jonah. Yeah. Basically the same idea. God, I don't want them to repent because I want them destroyed, so I'm not I'm going in the other direction. But we all tend to do this. I mean, we see it in kids all the time. Well, I didn't ask mom and dad because I knew they were going to say no, so but I can now do it because they didn't say no. But but when we know that God was going to say no and we do it anyway, we're sinning. Just as a kid who goes out and does something that they know their parents weren't going to say no to, but because they didn't actually say no, we're going to go do it, they're still sinning. They're still being disobedient. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody told me no, so I'm okay. I knew they didn't want me to do it, so I didn't ask. And we do that so often to God. God, you didn't tell me no. You know, I didn't, but, and I know I didn't ask, but you know, I you know, you didn't tell me no. You didn't. You didn't put a roadblock in front of me so that I couldn't. I couldn't do it, and we knew it was wrong. Free, free will. And then he said, you know, their gods aren't going to save them. And then verse thirteen: For according to the number that their cities were their gods, O Judah, and according to the number of the streets in Jerusalem, have you set up altars that? to the shameful things, even altars to burn incense to Baal. So what is he saying? Every city had gods. And from the sound of it, every city had its own god. And we can't even picture this, but the, you know, I listened to a story, and I've told it before, the idea of going from your home to the nearest town to buy, buy stuff in a polytheistic world. You prayed on, at your house, you prayed to your God of your home to cover your home while you were gone. When you got to the gate, you, covered, you prayed to the God of your land to keep, protect the land while you were gone. You got out to the street and you prayed to the God of the field or the streets to be able to protect you as you're on the, in those. You get to the forest, you pray to the God of the forest so that he'll protect you as you're going through the forest. And you probably offered a sacrifice as well. You get to the little river that you have a ford over and you pray to the river God so you won't get swept down the river. Then you finally get to the town, you pray to their God because you don't want to dishonor their God. And we go, why would anybody pray to all those gods? Israel had a God in every single town. And in Jerusalem, he says, it was so bad in Jerusalem, every corner had an idol on it. That's a lot of idols. Can you imagine even a small town, let's say, even a small town of chloride. If every corner in chloride had an altar to worship a god. We're only a mile, mile square, but think of how many corners there are in this town. You know, there are a lot of corners. I haven't counted them, but there's a lot of corners in this town. Jerusalem was much bigger than this town. They had idols and worship and altars on every corner. This is how wicked they were. This is how wicked they are. 
worshiping idols. And God is saying, I'm, you're, all, you're worshiping all these idols. I'm going to send judgment. You think these idols are so good? Go worship them. Go ask them for help. And he goes, and by the way, they're not going to help you because I'm not going to let them help you. And I'm, because I am superior to them. Verse 14 says, Therefore pray not for this people, neither lift up a cry or prayer for them, for I will not hear them in the time that they cry out unto me for their trouble. What has my beloved to do in my house, seeing that she has wrought lewdness with many, and the holy flesh is passed from you? When you do evil, then you rejoice. The Lord called your name a green olive tree, fair and goodly fruit, with the noise of of a great tumult, you have kindled fire upon it, and the branches are, of it are broken. For the Lord of hosts that plants the, planted you hath pronounced evil against you for the evil of the house of Israel and the house of Judah, which they have done against themselves to provoke me to anger in offering incense to Baal. So God is saying basically to Jeremiah and anybody else that might pray, do not pray for these people. They are beyond help at this point. Now, if they repented, I'm sure God would listen. But God is saying, as far as I'm concerned, they're beyond any help. Jeremiah, do not pray for these people. Now, as far as I know, God has not told us to stop praying for our country or our world. At least he hasn't told me. And none of the other great leaders that I've listened to. There may come a time when God says, do not pray for these people, this, this nation and this world. I hope it's not in my lifetime because that would be a hard prayer not to do. When you look around and you're going, God, look at all the harm that's happening. I want to pray. I want to see God move people's hearts back to him. And Jeremiah said, don't pray for them. God has determined evil upon them. And then he goes even, what has my beloved to do in my house? God still loves his people. You're going, what is my beloved, my treasured one? You know, we think about this. What is our attitude toward God that we have? Do we see that God truly loves us? Or are we afraid to even come into his presence? This will have everything to do with the way we respond to God. If I really truly believe that God loves me and cares about me, I am going to be very willing to come into his presence and say, God, I'm here. I need your help. If I'm thinking that God is just waiting there to beat me over the head with a baseball bat, am I going to want to go near him? No. And the sad thing is, I have met even many Christians whose attitude toward God is he's just waiting up there to beat me over the head and, and condemn me. I had a man that I knew at work. I know, I'm sure he was a Christian, but his view of God was God was always up there to beat him over the head. He never felt like anything good happened in his life. He never felt good about coming before God because he was worried that God was going to condemn. Here it says, my beloved. You know, that means it's somebody that he wants to just put his arms around and say, come on in. The prodigal son, the father said, welcome, and gave him a big hug when he returned home. This is God's attitude toward us. He says, I love you so much. Come on. I know you're covered with mud, but come on. I love you. And he's really to give us that hug and then, and then clothe us back up and say, you are, you are loved. You are, you are family. You are the one that I care for. And he goes, and what is the beloved done? Wrought lewdness with many. This literally means to be playing the prostitute with many gods. And God says, you are mine. You are my bride. You are supposed to be with me and me only. And what are you doing? You're with everybody but me. You know? And I love this because how many people in their flesh, if their spouse goes off and commits adultery, the first thing they want to do, it's over, can't, can't forgive you. God's example is, yes, they can be forgiven. Yes, they can be over and over forgiven to a point until judgment falls. And he says, the holy flesh is passed from you. This literally means 
the offering. Uh, from Haggai 2, verses 12 and 13, it talks about them placing their children, the holy flesh, into the fire. So here he's saying, you've taken your children and you've offered them to these foreign gods, these other gods. Not only have you been worshiping gods, you have been taking the precious gift of children that I have given you, and you have sacrificed them to these gods. What is happening in our world? We have people all the time sacrificing their children to the god of pleasure, the god of work, you know, by abortion. They just did, they did their abortions after the fact. We'll have the kid and then we'll kill the kid. Get rid of it. We do it before they're born. And it's all to worship a god out there. And this is a sad thing that happens. And when you did evil, then you rejoiced. And he's going, everything you're doing wrong, you're, you're celebrating what is wrong. How much in our world, especially over these last few years, have we watched people commit evil acts and celebrate? And it's happened a lot for the last probably 50 years. The riots, and they're celebrating. We were getting victories. The Rodney King riot, where they're beating the guy, and they're celebrating as they're beating this guy. Over and over again in our day, people are celebrating evil. The, the guys that make a business deal that abuses everybody, they celebrated all the problems those people have because they took advantage of them. Yeah. People that are strong celebrate that I'm strong enough to, to take advantage of this person. You know, I never thought of that they're celebrating evil. So all of this celebrating evil, and this is where we are in our world, celebrating yeah. evil. And... This is why we're sitting on the cusp. If there's not a repentance, judgment's coming. Now, I don't know if we're going to have repentance. I don't see a lot of people want to repent. But neither did they in any of the time repentance came. This is the point I make out because a lot of people go, well, it's so bad. Well, any time you had a revival, people were saying, it is so bad, there is no way God can save this generation. That is when God moves. Now, will he move this time? I don't know. Can he move? Absolutely. Every revival has been just that. If you would have gone into Nineveh, you know, Jonah's telling them, you guys are so bad, you're going to be wiped out in 40 days. You know, you have no hope for you. A lost cause. And he saw them as a lost cause, and they were a lost cause. Except God moved when they repented. Over and over, the revivals that we see in the Bible and in history, if you look at the time period, people are going, you read the religious writers at that time and they're going, it's a lost cause. There's no way God can move. We're, we're, we're at the end days because things are just so bad that there is no hope. And then God brings in a revival. Didn't have to be something in, in the people of Nineveh that? God moved. Why they responded? Who knows? Well, their king responded, yeah. but the people did too. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been, there wouldn't have been repentance. Something made them move. Now, what it was... We don't, Jonah's message didn't sound that great. Repent, repent in 40 days, you're going to be destroyed. And I don't think the repent was very strong. I believe it was probably, repent, 40 days, you're going to be destroyed. And I'm looking forward to you being destroyed. I'm a Jew, and I'm looking forward to you being destroyed. But, but God says if you repent, you're going to be okay. Yes, it doesn't seem that repentance does not mean anything. I would say it probably didn't mean anything to Nineveh at that, until they heard the message and God convicted them. If you get out into the world, most people do not know the Word of God. It is amazing how few people in America really know the Word of God and, and probably don't even know the word, meaning of the word repent. You know, most Christians don't know the meaning of the word repent. Well, that's another thing they say. These people, they don't have any need for repentance because they don't think they're doing anything wrong. And that's the problem. This is why it's hard right now, but they didn't at this time. They, Nineveh would not have known that. The Holy Spirit has to work on their heart, and the message has to be given out. And this is the important thing. And if the message is given out and the Holy Spirit works on their heart, people might repent. And that's why I keep making the point to people, every single one would have been this thing that nobody knew, nobody would have said this could ever be repentance brought from it.
Is God going to do a repentance? I don't know. Could he? Absolutely. History tells us that he could. Then he goes, not only are you rejoicing about evil, he says, the Lord called you by name, and green olive tree, fair and goodly fruit, with the noise of a great torment, he hath kindled fire upon it, and the branches are broken. He says, I made you a beautiful olive tree, green, producing fruit. And he goes, because of the trouble, I am setting fire to this tree. Now, Israel is often in the Bible called the olive tree or the fig tree. You know, both those trees refer to Israel most of the time. So he says, I made you a beautiful olive tree, and now I am setting it afire because you have not produced the fruit that I expected. This is quite a statement. And he says, you are an olive tree, and because of your disobedience, a great tumult, a large fire is being set on you because it takes a large fire to burn up something that's green. And he says, I've been, I'm going to burn you up. For the Lord of hosts has planted you, and he has pronounced evil against you, and evil against the house of Israel, and the house of Judah, which they have done against themselves to provoke me to anger in offering incense to Baal. So their disobedience brought the, dis, brought the, the pain upon themselves. How many times, and maybe we've said it, hopefully we haven't said it, but how many times have we heard somebody say, why does God let all these bad things happen to me? Well, probably because you're not obeying God. And this is the, the most important thing. Even if we think we're obeying God, technically we're probably not obeying God in all areas that he's telling us to obey him in. Now we could be Job, and God's just saying, I'm going to teach you a lesson. But even remember, I've said over and over again, Job had a problem. He believed in the prosperity gospel. How did God have to fix him from that? He had to take away all of his blessings and say, I still love you even though you don't have anything, and I still love you and I still care for you. So that he had to have his mind changed about what he thought he knew. So even when we look at the case of Job and say, Job, you were an innocent man. Satan has just gone out and harassed you because he challenged God. God still had a purpose in that challenge to teach Job something. When we go through hard things, God is trying to teach us something. Usually that we don't understand God. Or we don't believe what, he, what we say we believe about him. Because his test on us will always be, do you really believe? God says, I want you to love your neighbor as yourself. I'll not even go to enemy at this point. So what does he do? He gives us a neighbor that's a little difficult to love and say, are you going to love this neighbor? Well, God, I really believe this. I really do believe it. Well, maybe, maybe I don't believe it. <laughs> and then, of course, if you learn to love your neighbor, then he gives you, now love your enemy. And he gives you a kind of a nice enemy. You know, not, and then he starts getting a worse and worse enemy until you start going, all right, God, I think I really believe, I think I've got this one finally. And he goes, okay, now we'll work on another area. And say, do you really believe this area? Let me teach you about forgiveness. And have somebody that you really love do something wrong to you. Are you going to forgive them? Now, it's easier to forgive somebody that you love. But how many people don't forgive that person? And then we keep working on and God goes, okay, this person doesn't deserve your forgiveness at all. Are you going to forgive them? Those are hard. Those are really hard. God, they don't deserve, they don't deserve any forgiveness. And God said, you usually say, neither did you. All right, God, help me love them. <laughs> help me forgive them. But all of our tests are just for this reason. Do we believe what we believe? Do we believe something wrong? And God says, I want you to learn it the right way. And he says, I'm going to run you through the ringer and see if you're going to really believe or are you really going to change the way you think. And this is the problem that we have is too often we try to tell God, uh, God, I really do love you. I want to obey you in all areas that you tell me to believe. And God says, okay, here, here's something I've been telling you. Don't want that one, God. No, God, I don't think I really want to believe that one. Well, you said you believe what I'm telling you. This is what we're working on. And he gives us a test. And then we find out how little we do trust him. And how little we surrender to him because we're still trying to do things our way. Oh, we're always going to find something that we don't fully trust God in and believe in. Now, 
The hard thing is that we have to learn our lesson and move forward in the lesson. And you know, I'm getting better. God doesn't have to beat me over the head with an 8x8 eight eight anymore, just a 2x4. And he doesn't have to do what is long you know, for me in most cases. I surrender a lot easier because one thing I've learned over, over 52 years is God wins. Now, I'm still stubborn, but I'm not as stubborn as I used to be. You know, because I realize very quickly, and there's times when God says, I want you to do something. Okay, God, how much? <laughs> you know, what, what exactly do you want me to do today? And sometimes I surrender, sometimes I don't. But I'm getting better about saying, okay, God, I surrender. The question is, do we truly trust him? Do we truly trust that he is God and that he has what's best in, in us? But the question is, are we willing to surrender to God? Because you're right. I don't trust my own flesh either. Why? Because we're told that we are to be crucified. Uh, we are to be crucified in our flesh. I feel a little bad when I pray to God about something and it gives me the opportunity to follow through. God, help me be nice to everybody as everybody cuts you off on the highway. But God is not wanting that to be our answer. Besides the fact that once you've asked God to help you, he's going to keep, he's going to keep after it until you pass that test. <laughs> and you know what? People say, don't pray for patience because you'll have to have go through trouble. It, to be honest with you, it doesn't matter what you pray for or not. If God wants you to learn patience, he's going to do it. If he wants you to learn forgiveness, he's going to give you the people to forgive. If he wants you to teach you love, he's going to give you the people to need to love. It just happens because he goes, this is what you need. Over and over again, we just want to be able to say, God, crucify my flesh and help me to surrender to you. And that surrendering is not easy. Don't get me wrong. It is easy, but it's not easy. And every time I've gone through this process where I didn't surrender to God, and I know that I'm supposed to surrender to God, I'm fighting surrendering to God, 100% of the time when I finally surrender to him, I'm kicking myself because it was so easy to surrender to him and said, I should have done this weeks ago, years ago, whatever it might be, and it was so easy, why did I fight it so long? Because the flesh does not want to surrender. And it fights tooth and nail. Why? Because it means that it knows that that surrender means it gets put on the cross or on the altar to be a sacrifice. The flesh does not want to do that. The flesh knows that surrender to God means it dies. You can do it. Okay, I guess not. <laughs> but this is what he does over and over again. He says, is your life crucified? Have you truly allowed your life to be crucified? Are you truly a sacrifice on the altar? And most of us will have to say, no, we're not. I don't want to be crucified. I don't want to have my flesh burned up on the altar. God, I'm really not sure that I really, really, really want to do this. Because my flesh is saying, my spirit is saying, yes, I really want to do this. And my flesh is saying, hold it, I don't want to do this because you're going to put me on a cross and kill me if we do this. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll repent and do it the right way later on. But this is the problem that we have. The flesh does not want to be crucified. The flesh does not want to be put on an altar. And it fights against the spirit. If I'm angry, what am I angry about? Somebody, somebody didn't do what I wanted them to do. It's selfish and pride. This is why we can be angry and not sin. But I have said all along, if I'm angry about something that happened to me, it's virtually impossible for me to not sin. If I'm angry about the way somebody else is being treated, I might be able to not sin in them because they're actually being harmed and, they, and their anger is good in that case. When God is angry, it's because of the disobedience and he's also angry at what it's doing to the people he cares about. It's not because, oh, you hurt me and I'm so mad at you because you did this. He goes, he knows what the sin does to us, the destruction it does to us. And he's angry about that destructiveness. He's not angry at the disobedience to him. He's angry about the destruction and the consequences of that disobedience. 
And this is what we need to understand. And, you know, anger is not the only sin we all have problems with, you know, but it's a, it is one because I, I understand God is saying, be kind, be just. Usually nowadays I'm going, okay, they're just being stupid. Let them be stupid. Okay, it's not. <laughs> but all of this is where he's going to teach us. He's trying to teach us in all of this stuff. And he keeps letting it go in, and this is the sanctifying portion that he's doing for us. He wants to get rid of sinful desires and thoughts and actions and sanctify us and make us, per, you know, make us more perfect. But the problem is the flesh does not want to get on that cross. It fights tooth and nail to, to, to get out, and sometimes we give way to the flesh uh, more often than we shouldn't. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We have three things against us that don't want to be sacrificed. And God is saying, I want to sacrifice these things. I want to put them on a cross. I want to put them on the altar and burn them up because I want you to be righteous. And we have the, all these things in the flesh that say, don't do these things. And we have the spirit who has all, all the power if we give it to him. But the problem is we don't give the spirit the power that he needs to take out because he's a gentleman. He's not going to say, well, I'm just going to get rid of them because. He goes, I want you to want to get rid of them. I, for I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. In the life that I now live, I live by the faith of Christ. And he says, if we follow Christ, he'll crucify the flesh. But we need to keep following him in that aspect. And that's hard. It's not an easy thing to do. Surrendering to God is easy, yet very hard to do. Because it goes against the pride of the flesh. Because I'm surrendering who I am, who I think I am, to God. And the real question is, do I really believe that God has nothing but my best interest at heart? If I truly, truly believe this, and I believe me, I'm in that ballpark myself, if we truly, truly believe that God has only our best interest at heart, sacrifice would not be hard. It would not be hard if I truly 100% believed it because no matter what he put me through, it's for my good, but it's hard to believe. It's hard to act out because when you're first saved, everything is, oh, wow, look how well, it's so wonderful. Yeah. So, but this is where God is. You know, are we really willing to trust him? And ultimately, the sad thing is most of us aren't really willing to trust him in all aspects. And I understand he's invisible. <laughs> But, but we know that he meets our needs, and yet we don't want to trust him when, when it comes to... I want to trust him, but then I don't want to lose what I have. <laughs> if I trust him, he's going to send me to Africa. Well, that's it. You know, we, we become afraid of what might happen. Well, like you said, I satisfy what I have, but he wants to be better. Yep. And that's, that's a big part of it, too. Yeah. We're afraid of what the better might be. But the good thing about this is whatever God asks us to give up, he will give us the desire for the better in the long run. And because I've heard people, well, he might send me to be a missionary. Well, if he sends you to be a missionary, by the time you're ready, you're going to want to be a missionary. Your heart will be there. So this is the important thing that God has for us. Oh, all the time. And what are we in right now is a whole culture of fear. You know, we're supposed to be afraid of everything, and now we're supposed to fear this new COVID that's starting to pop back up again. Well, it's coming back. It's coming back. God, I really, I'm enjoying playing with my Easy Bake Oven, and you've got, you've got Disneyland out there for me. When they left out of Egypt, they're in slavery. They're working like 18 hours a day making bricks for the Egyptians. And then they, but they didn't want to give that up. See, to give go to the promised land didn't want to give up making bricks for the Egyptians so I'd go to the promised land and be free. But it is true that we don't want to give up what we have because we're afraid of what we might get. And yet what we get is so much better than what, we, what we're locked into. But it's hard to understand. Give me, don't get me wrong. I don't, it's, it's very easy to say I understand where I'm at now. It's not perfect, but I understand where I'm at now. And God, you're asking me to go into something new and different. God, I know you say it's going to be good, but I like where I'm at. Yeah. So 
Lord, we ask you to bless this evening. Give us the opportunity, Lord, to learn to surrender to you easier. Give us the opportunity to learn that you care for us and you have great plans that are good for us. Help us to understand that you are a good God with good plans for us and you're not out to hurt us. And we thank you for all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.